Good morning. You know, I'm a lousy fisherman. I just can't seem to be able to catch any fish. I've tried everything. Lures, worms, night crawlers. When I started fishing, I used to hate handling the worms. Nasty, slimy, gross little things. I, mean, I used to use gloves to, to just touch them. That's true. Yeah. I'm so bad at fishing. I think the best place for me to fish would be the Boston Aquarium. <laughs> if only they'll let me fish there. You know why? Plenty of fish, big, fat, juicy, and all in one location. You don't have to endure the weather, get bitten by bugs, or sit and wonder, where did all the fish go? If I try to fish at the aquarium, what do you think will happen to me? Won't they say, these have already been caught and raised here, and why don't you go out there and catch some fish which is running free? Then, aren't we all like that? Christ said, we will be fishers of men. But where do you think the number one fishing hole in town is today? Here, the church. The body of Christ. The weekly gathering of the believers. So at least when it comes to fishing or evangelism, don't we all prefer to fish from the fish tank? We are so afraid of fishing out there that we like to fish here. We are friendly with visitors. We invite people to events at the local church. We might even answer a question or two if you're asked. But we don't seek to verbally share the gospel ourselves with the people whom we come in contact with. We leave that to the experts. So what is it that makes us so afraid to actively share the gospel in the real world where the fish are running free. Let's talk about some of our fears. A lot of times we feel stupid and inadequate, don't we? Especially when we stand before intellectuals or people with tremendous amounts of knowledge and wisdom, we're wondering how we're going to convincingly share the gospel to, with these guys. It looks like they're going to skin me and eat me alive. We believe we don't have all the answers we need to have. In this day and age when the news media is entirely against us, and there's so much anti-Christian propaganda, and they're constantly trying to make us look stupid, it looks like it's practically impossible, isn't it? We feel like we need to be armed to the teeth with all kinds of answers. Who knows what they'll throw at you? And sometimes we feel that Christianity itself needs a lot of defending. The whole idea of a savior who hung on a cross sounds so crude and savage, doesn't it? It simply does not gel with our refined sensibilities. We feel the compulsion to present a more civilized form of Christianity. Talk about loving one another, being nice to each other. Talk about the temporal benefits rather than the eternal. One that will resonate with the 
postmodern mindset. We want to reduce it to something similar to a children's Bible with pretty pictures, but no blood, no gory details, just so that they don't laugh us out of town. And overall, we feel that it's quite a challenge. But is this how evangelism is supposed to work? What if I tell you that evangelism is not meant to be so scary and difficult? What if I tell you that there's a lot easier way? Let's go back to real fishing for a moment. See, in South India, fishermen go out in the night on what we call katumaram, trees tied together like a boat, what you call catamarans. They would light a lamp and place it in the middle of the boat. And then they'll sit back. This particular kind of fish, drawn by the light, would just fly right into the boat. When the boat gets full, they would just return to land. What if evangelism was really supposed to be like this kind of fishing? Like fishing with a lamp. Let's turn to scriptures and read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 17. I would, be reading, I would be reading from the English Standard Version. Please follow along with me as I read from the overhead screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the, cross, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low in the world, low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, 
but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So now Paul begins this letter to the Corinthians where there is a lot of division. The Corinthians like to align themselves with popular leaders and they had rival factions which were quarreling with one another and there was a lot of spiritual one-upmanship based on whom they profess to follow. In the preceding verse, Paul says, I'm so glad I didn't baptize any of you. What he's saying is, if I'd baptized any of you, you would have used that as a boasting point. And then he launches right into his main calling, which is to preach the gospel. And from this text, it's pretty obvious that he's trying to explain how he shares the gospel, about his role, and about the role of the gospel itself and the role of God. So instead of, and instead of approaching this text sequentially or line by line, we will approach it topically by asking some questions and finding some answers from this text. First question, how did he not spread or present the gospel? Verse 17, he says, not with eloquent words of wisdom, not with lofty speech of wisdom. Verse 2.1, 2.4, not with plausible words of wisdom. See, Paul uses the word wisdom in two ways. First, it's the wisdom according to the Greeks. You see, what was called wisdom in those days was a complete and well-articulated worldview propounded by the Greek philosophers of the day. It tried to make sense of life and proposed a framework or a structure for the choices and values and priorities by which they should live. So when Paul refers to the Greeks seeking wisdom, he's partly alluding to this philosophical worldview. The second wisdom is being wise according to the world, worldly wisdom. This is not, this is not uh, wisdom as in uh, don't be penny wash pound foolish or uh, don't stand in the middle of the highway, you'll get run over or be careful when you change diapers for a boy, you may get sprayed. This is secular wisdom that can be gleaned from the latest practices and methodologies in the world around us. See, the world relies a lot on conventional methods, logic, understanding, knowledge, intelligence, development, you know, and all these things are operative at, in society at large. And we see this all around us. Go to any effectively run business. You will see such wisdom at work. Jack Welch at GE came up with this uh, principle of chopping off the bottom 5% of the employees just to improve operating efficiency. It doesn't matter how it affected them. Two weeks, uh, two days back, John Chambers at Cisco did the same thing. He was going to chop off 5% from the bottom and then he was going to add back through acquisitions. If it's cheaper to get things done in China, let's move it out there. It doesn't matter how it affects people here. Have you, have you uh, realized that there are people who are keeping track of everything that you do? I used to work in a fundraising database uh, at the university and constantly we used to import data about the alumni, data which was purchased by purchased from third parties. And these people used to keep track of every purchase, everything that you do. If you bought lingerie or if you bought cat food, it was in that spreadsheet. That's worldly wisdom at its finest. But then you may be wondering, what's wrong with borrowing from the world? I'm glad you asked. You see, throughout scripture we see this contrast between world's principles and 
God's principles. And for example, we, God, Jesus took the world's model of leadership and inverted it. He said, the greatest among you will be the least. If you want to be a leader, then you're going to be at the bottom. But that's not how the world operates, does it? See, the world thrives in selfish gain or selfishness in general. But we are called to support those in need within the body, feed the poor, visit the persecuted in prison. The world believes in cohabitation, but we believe in holding, holding marriage sacred. We walk in faith and not by sight. By faith requires us to believe and trust in what we do not see. Conventional wisdom will demand proof and results. It will only trust in what can be felt, seen, heard, measured, quantified. So the Greeks had this philosophical approach explaining the universe and Paul would not have, would have none of it. He didn't say, if I can only speak their philosophical language, I can somehow trust the Insert the gospel message. Reach them for Christ. Greeks, especially the sophists, used a lot of rhetoric or oratory to articulate the worldview. But Paul did not feel the necessity to address his message in pretty words or eloquence. He didn't feel, if I just tickle their ears or amaze them with my speech, they will come to Christ. He didn't think if I can only be a little more creative or entertaining, I can somehow get their attention and drive home the message of the gospel. See, in, in comparison to the prevailing culture, Paul's delivery would have been considered pretty boring. But this is not an excuse for laziness or careless delivery of the message. See, Paul did not want his communication to distract from the message. He didn't want to draw attention to himself away from the gospel. He didn't want them to exclaim, what a marvelous preacher. He wanted them to exclaim, what a marvelous savior. Second question, how did he share the gospel? Verse, chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. For, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. See, Paul shared only about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he did it in fear and weakness and much trembling. He stuck to the plain message of the gospel. And everything he preached was Christ-centered and cross-centered. And what is the gospel anyway? See, the gospel is all about how God in his holiness and justice and wrath and wisdom and mercy and compassion, instead of totally unhighlighting us, this fallen world, he chose, he decided that the only way this fallen mankind could be reconciled to him would be through his own son being crucified on a cross and experiencing the full-blown wrath of God on the cross. Thus Christ, Paul says, thus Christ became our wisdom from God which made him our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. See, God knew that we could never make ourselves righteous. We could never cleanse ourselves or sanctify ourselves. We could never redeem ourselves on our own. We could never set right what had been broken on our own. So Christ became all these things for us, so that when God sees us, he sees the work of Christ on the cross, substituting for us. And this was done according to God's own wisdom. And your believing in Christ, in his crucifixion and his resurrection, 
and your decision to turn away from your old way of life, from your sinful past, and to follow him will save you for eternity. That is the message that Paul preached. His message did not extol the temporal benefits of Christianity, about how your life will improve right away, about how your kids will stop being sneaky and do all the chores without whining, or how love and forgiveness will pervade through your household, and how your marriage will instantly get better, and your wife will stop complaining about you. And Sorry. <laughs> um, see, Paul shared about Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. As simply and succinctly as possible. He emphasized the content of the gospel over form. He did it in fear and trembling. You know why? Because he was being Christ, the king's messenger. And you are being the king's messenger. You better better deliver the message as it is. So next question is, why not use eloquence? Why not use lofty speech? Why not use persuasive words? Why wouldn't he use every weapon in his arsenal to somehow drive home the message of the gospel? Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. And my speech and my message were not implausible or persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What is he saying here? He's saying that the word of the cross, that is the gospel, has a power of its own. And he does not want to mess with it. He does not want his words or his delivery or his eloquence to interfere with the work or the activity or the power of God. So what is this power and how does it really work in our salvation? See, to understand this, you have to look at the two groups of people that Paul is talking about in this passage. First, he talks about those who are perishing. Then he talks about those who are being saved. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what do we know about those who are perishing? We know that they were, they were both Jews and Greeks who were perishing. It is not restricted to a particular race or a demographic. They appear to be spread across all the various social backgrounds. But he particularly calls out the scribes and the debaters and the philosophers of that age among Jews and Greeks. They were the somebodies of that time. They were intellectuals and, and wise and learned. And they had a very hard time accepting a crucified Savior. Why couldn't the Jews accept a crucified Savior? Because he says the cross is a stumbling block for the Jews. Why is that? See, the Jews have a big problem with a hung Savior. Because in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, God had declared that anyone who hung from a tree as a punishment also stood under God's curse. And the Jews, who had been eagerly looking forward to a Messiah, in their minds were thinking that the Messiah was supposed to be powerful. He was supposed to be the anointed one of God. And he was supposed to come and rescue them from foreign occupation. 
So how could the anointed one of God be also be cursed by God? See, that was the stumbling block for the Jews. And the Gentiles couldn't accept his crucified Savior either. Why? Because it appeared, the cross appeared to be a folly to the Gentiles. Why was that? If you've seen the movie, The Green Mile, where Tom Hanks acts as a jailer, you'll understand why. I don't consider this movie entertainment at all. It was horrible. (laughs) Towards the end of this movie, you know, it'll be extremely heart-wrenching to watch this seemingly nice and innocent guy being electrocuted on an electric chair in excruciatingly painful detail. To this day, when I channel surf, when I come across this movie, I feel this revulsion in my stomach. And I skip over the channel as fast as I can. See, the cross was to the Jews and the Greeks what the electric chair is to us. It was not the subject of polite conversation. Can you imagine the women in our lives wearing jewelry, depicting and glorifying the electric chair or the gas chambers of Auschwitz or or the guillotine of the French. See, to the Gentiles, it sounded very much like a stupid and bizarre and convoluted and nutty thing for someone to base an entire religion on whatever happened on a cross. So far, we've looked at those who are perishing in trying to understand the power of God in our salvation. Then now let's look at those who are being saved. What do we know about them? They were both Jews and Greeks who were being saved. And scripture says not many were wise or powerful or of noble birth. That means some of them were wise or powerful or of noble birth. Looks like they had very similar backgrounds as those who were perishing. It appears that this group believed, but those who were perishing did not. What was the big difference between the two? Between those who were perishing and those who were being saved. 124, but but to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many were wise according to the world standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing that the things that are. So no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul is talking about something called calling, which which the saved group had, while the perishing group did not. Verse 24, but to those who were called. Verse 26, consider your calling. Verse 27, but God chose the foolish and the weak and the low and the despised. Verse 30, because of him. You are in Christ Jesus. It is what we call the effectual call of the gospel in contrast to the universal call of the gospel which is made available to everyone. See, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in convict, 
in the conviction of sin and in accepting of salvation. God is constantly at work and he works in individuals. And in, in Paul himself went through this experience on the word uh, on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, this calling or drawing is the power of God in salvation. It operates within an individual, completely transforming them, turning their lives up, up and upside down, making them give up everything that they held dear to them their family, their possessions, and even their own lives. They pour out their lives for the benefit of others, trying to please God in thought, word, and deed. It is a fact that God has been at work within an individual, preparing the soil long before the seed is planted. See, the God, the gospel is not simply not information that someone needs to be convinced about some message to be delivered or some truth or fact to be explained or proved. It is the power of God at work. And it works according to God's own timetable. And that's why many times the message message of the gospel may not elicit the desired reaction from an individual. It may cause revulsion in some as it did the Gentiles. Or it may be simply laughed off or it may be scorned by some. While in others, those who are called or primed or regenerated by God, it will have the most explosive effect. It will ignite their guards. It will make them white hot with affection for God, as Piper says. I've seen people in both categories in my life. About 10 years back, I was um, sharing with this guy called Suresh. He was a colleague of mine at Cisco. We used to have him over, and we I used to reach out to him a lot of the gospel. Every time, it was like he had just a monkey ball. He was so angry at the idea that God could choose us, not Hindus and Muslims. He was so upset that Christ would be born amongst the Jews, and then that it would be the, he would be the God of Christians. Why, why couldn't Hindus, in their own way of life, in their own religious system, have such means of salvation. And every time I tried, he simply refused to leave. I wasn't aware at the time that God was not active in his life at the time. But then I've seen people on the other side. When Josh Davidson was uh, celebrating his graduation, Pastor had invited me to his party. And I had somehow held back and I didn't, uh, <clears throat> I wanted to go, but then I still didn't say yes at that time. And then that morning, my friend Philip called and he said, you haven't seen us in years. You need to come for my son's birthday party. Besides, we are offering Indian food. <laughs> I couldn't refuse. And, and we went. There I... I was chatting with this guy called Prince. I've heard about him. I've never met him before. We, we said hi to each other and immediately we talked about church and he said, we go to a United Methodist Church. Just a couple of weeks earlier, I had had this long conversation with the pastor from the church who, who confessed to me that they would throw out all of the Pauline epistles out the window. 
So I had to ask my question, just being friendly. How do you reconcile with the fact that your church has thrown out half the Bible out the window? He was taken aback. But it started our conversation. It led to the sharing of the gospel. We talked for a couple of hours. And he said, this is not enough. You need to come home. He lived in Manchester, New Hampshire. So we drove there the next day and spent another four hours talking about the gospel. See, he simply could not get enough of scripture. He looked like someone who had been very primed by God, where God was really active. He had a lot of questions. He even questioned at the time the divinity of Christ. But when, when I showed him, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He was convinced, okay, that's it, let's move on. And he had so many questions, and God provided the answers. He would come sometimes to Lowell, where I work, and we would chat in my company's lobby. We would meet at Panetta Bread and Chumsford and talk again. We would sometimes spend hours together. But he was one in whom it was so evident that God was already active in his life. And you may see two people sometimes with very similar upbringing, the same family, similar interests, nurturing and schooling, react very differently to the same presentation of the gospel. And Paul says that it is the wisdom of God that has been demonstrated by the way in which the same object which causes revulsion in some will transform others to nobodies and turn them towards him. God also uses the cross to shame the somebodies, the intellectuals who refuse to believe in him. And we who are being saved will never have a chance to boast. We'll never be able to say it was because I was smart. It was because of my intellect. It was because of my own goodness. It was because of my religious upbringing or somebody's eloquence that I accepted the gospel. If there is anything to boast about, it is the fact that the power of God was at work within me in my salvation. But then that would beg the the question. If it was God who called me into salvation, what was the role of my free will? Didn't I make a choice to follow God? Or was he just a robot who was just pre-programmed to make a particular choice? Didn't I have any say in the matter. See, throughout scripture, we see this tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Scripture says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then scripture also says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Scripture says, um, or God says through scripture, you shall be holy for I am holy. But then he also says it is the I, Lord, the Lord God who will make you holy. Sometimes it seems that God and man are responsible for the same outcome. How is that? Let me illustrate this with a true story. There was a little Indian boy in India, of course, who was squirreling away every cent, every penny he could find to buy cassette tapes. He loved music. In those days, there were no CDs and there were tapes. But he was also a topper in his class. In a class of 70, he was usually within the top 
three ranks. They would just rank you one to 70. And every term, you'll take home this report card which says where you stood exactly in the class. You could be one out of 70 or five out of 70 or 70 out of 70. Imagine that. And his dad had this pattern of explosive anger. If this kid ever got in trouble, sometimes musical instruments or sports equipment, they would get broken during, you know, if, if this kid got in trouble. So the, um, in, in the 80s, this uh, family uh, start building their own house. They don't uh, employ a contractor, so they're at the site taking turns. And this kid lose, uh, misses 70 or 100 days of school that year. And the report card arrives on the last day of school. And he sees a steady regression. Starting from the third rank in the first term, he goes to fifth, seventh, ninth, 10, 13, 15. Because they have these um, midterm uh, exams as well. So eventually he lands 15th in his class. And he feels that something really bad is going to happen. So just to be safe... He switches his tapes with his dad. He has his own collection of tapes and his dad has his own collection, different collection. He takes his tapes and places them in his dad's rack. And he takes his dad's tapes and keeps them in his rack. Dad sees the report card, immediately goes to the kid's tape collection or where it used to be, takes all of them and destroys them completely. Now, who destroyed the father's tapes? Was it the father who did it out of his own volition or free will? Or was it the son who appeared to be sovereign over his dad's tapes? Or was it both? In a tiny but minuscule way, if a little kid could be sovereign or the destruction of his dad's tapes, or the preservation of his own, can the God who spoke this universe into existence, who is infinite in his power, wisdom, knowledge, and all other attributes, be sovereign over our salvation while we exercise our own free will in choosing him? Can God and we both be simultaneously responsible for salvation? I think so. See, we see the power of God again being illustrated throughout the book of Acts. Christ told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit until the Holy Spirit arrived and do nothing until then. Why was that? Was it to give them just a moral boost? Or was it because it is the Holy Spirit who is propelling the gospel through the ends of the earth? You see how Luke leaves editorial comments periodically throughout the, the, that book to reinforce the theme of how the Holy Spirit was building his church. Acts 6-7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 12-24, but the word of God continued to grow and be multiplied. Acts 16-4, so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in numbers daily. Acts 16-6, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of Asia, word in Asia. Acts 19.20, so the word of God was growing mightily and prevailing. Do you see how the gospel or the word of the Lord 
is being described as a dynamic entity in Acts. It, it seems to be progressing sometimes through and sometimes in spite of the human agents. See, the gospel does not spread by methods conjured up by marketing geniuses or by the inventiveness of men. It is spread through the power of God. So what are the applications here? We have two extremes. If we think that we have such lofty credentials that God and his kingdom cannot do without, we need to take heed lest we fall. If we think that it rests on on our shoulders, then we are in trouble. See, we have our own roles and God has his own role. And we should not try to usurp God's role or rob God of his glory. He does not like that. Nor should we be unfaithful to our own roles. See, God prefers to display his power through the weak, the trembling and the powerless, instead of the strong, the mighty and the powerful. God is not waiting for a new breed of marketing consultants and growth strategists and advertising gurus and organizational pundits to come and rescue his floundering kingdom expansion initiatives. He is already at work using the nobodies of this world to reach the nobodies of this world. So if you think you are a nobody, you don't have the smarts or the skills or the credentials to be an evangelist today, then you are indeed uniquely qualified to be powerful, to be a powerful instrument of God in this activity all around you. See, God loves our inadequacy because that is the way he can demonstrate his power in the salvation of men. He is looking for the weak and the humble and the inadequate. He is constantly at work. The gospel is constantly at work. And it has a power of its own. It has the power to convict and to turn people, to turn them towards God. And all you have to do is to deliver it. Be God's messenger. Just deliver the message from your king. And be sensitive to the activity of God around you. And in individuals, when you share the gospel with someone, it will be very clear whether someone has been prepared by God or not. But God calls us to share the gospel with everyone. And if if we think that it is about our own accomplishments, we think we are doing great things for God, or we should be doing great things for God, we got it all wrong. See, it is about God doing great things in his kingdom and him choosing to use you in his activity. And all we need to do is to humbly present ourselves as empty vessels to be filled and to be used by him. When we finally realize who is really in charge or who carries the real burden, it is actually really freeing. And it should embolden us to boldly share and share the gospel with anybody and everybody we know. Because we know that God is at work already in the salvation of men and it is not entirely upon us. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. It sounds a lot like fishing with a lamp, doesn't it? Let us pray. 
God, we recognize that you are at work constantly expanding your kingdom. And we present ourselves humbly as empty vessels to be used by you as you feel, see fit. We 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 lay all the things that we hold high about ourselves at your feet. We are nothing and you are everything and we are so privileged that you will use us for your work. Use us, Lord, and help us, God, to grow, to rely more upon you every day. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.